It's so good to see you. My name's Eric. I'm one of the pastors here at River West. Uh, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, you raise your hand and someone will give you one to use. We open the Bible each week. And I am very, very excited to open God's Word with you today. Again, John 10. We are in, <clears throat> we are in week three of a series that we're calling Jesus Is. And it's a series on the seven I am statements of Jesus that come to us from the, the Gospel of John. This is a series on the identity of Jesus. This is, we're thinking of it, thinking of it as Jesus according to Jesus. And so in the interest of reorienting ourselves and also knowing that many of you have been throughout the summer on vacation or sabbatical, just kidding. Um, <laughs> Love you, Adam. Uh, what I want to do, because I love all of you, is help to sort of reorient us to some of the themes from this series and where, where we're headed. The statement that Jesus uses, that statement, I am, is the same exact statement that's used in what's the Greek Old Testament, what's referred to and called the Septuagint. It's a statement that's used by God in Exodus chapter 3 in this key and pivotal moment in the story of God when God reveals himself through the burning bush to Moses. And Moses is um, asking this voice that's speaking to him, what is your name? And God says this, what... Um, it's translated in the Greek as uh, this phrase, I am, which means ego imi. And Jesus, I know I'm being very brief on this, but Jesus kind of takes and uses that exact same statement to identify himself to his listeners in the first century. It's a statement that Jesus uses to identify himself, but also it's a, it's a claim to divinity about the nature of Jesus and who he is and what his purposes are. And so as we are diving into this series, we are getting the identity of Jesus from him. And subsequently, as we receive and, and, and hear and are shown the identity of Jesus, our goal is to find our identity through what he tells us. And so the great sort of wager or um, question of this series is, is this, what if we let the I am tell us who we are? That's what we're getting after. And so far, we've considered Jesus as the bread of life and the light of the world. And today, we will look into another one of Jesus' exclusive claims about himself. And really, each one of these claims that Jesus makes, all seven of them, are there's an exclusivity to it, which is, in, on the one hand, compelling, and on the other hand, maddening to some of us that Jesus would describe himself in this way, but this is the way he talks about his nature, and he invites us to receive it from him as truth. And so, John chapter 10, are you ready? You're so ready. You are so ready. John chapter 10, let's start in verse one. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. 
This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the door. That's what we're considering today. So growing up, I had, I had really bad allergies, like really, really bad, and we couldn't figure out why. And um, so as it turns out, I was super allergic to my family dog, and uh, I'm not saying my parents did a bad job, but they could have looked into that, and uh, you know, it's just, they're not here today, so I felt good about saying that. So... Nobody's perfect. Parents, you know this. Nobody's perfect. I, I currently own a dog that has resurfaced all the allergies that plagued my youth. So, um, but in my, in my, um, in particular in like junior high, my allergies would get so bad that I would get sent home from school because of sneezing fits. Ironically, I would get sent right back to the animal that was causing all of this. But uh, anyways... And so I'd spend many a day, they weren't really sick days, but we'll call them sick days. I would spend them on the couch at my home in junior high, and uh, this is the 90s. There wasn't a lot on television, but you know what was on television? The Price is Right, and various other game shows that I would watch and consume on my allergy days. So I want you to imagine with me that, <clears throat> that you're on a game show, and it's one of those moments where you have to choose between two doors or perhaps three doors. And whatever is behind one of those doors, the door that you select, whatever you choose, you actually get to keep whatever's behind them. And a lot's been written about this. It's sort of, I think it's called the let's make a deal dilemma about the odds and statistics of how you would um, choose the right one. But imagine this, concealed behind one of the doors is like an empty shoebox, something worthless. Behind the other door, another door is a goat, right? Like just, just an animal that you don't want, right? But behind one of the doors is a life-altering amount of money or a mortgage payoff or student loan forgiveness or a car or four months vacation in Hawaii or whatever it is that you want. I want you to think about what you would want to be behind that door. It's behind one of these doors and you don't know, but you get the opportunity to choose between three. So I want you to imagine that you're on the show and this is, this is your opportunity, the pressure that that would bring. And as right before you are about to make the choice, Bob Barker walks up to you, because of course it's Bob. And he sets down that obnoxiously long microphone. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, why is, it, why is the microphone that long? And he sets the microphone down, and he walks up to you, and he says, it's this door. This is the door. There's the shoebox. It's worthless. There's the goat that is just going to drag your life down. But right here is life-altering opportunity. How would you respond to him if he said that to you? Would you be like, Bob, you're such a narcissist. 
because I love my options. Or would you say something like, Bob, that's so exclusive for you to come and say, this is the only way. So is he a narcissist? Is, is he exclusive? Is it just another power grab? Or is he offering you a gift of sheer grace? What do you think it is? I want to talk to you today about this statement from Jesus. Jesus says, I am the door. And I want to explore that together today. Some of us may, when we hear a statement like this, some of these exclusive claims of Jesus, we're tempted to think, is Jesus just a narcissist? Is Jesus just a, a power mongrel? Is, is he just sort of hungry for more followers? Or is he the way? And is he offering us something far greater than cash or four months in Hawaii? You know what I mean? That's the question today. So Jesus' claims about his identity I want you to hear me. Jesus' claim about his identity is really about the kind of leader that he is. And isn't this true that for better or worse, leaders in our life have shaped our sense of identity? And this is a series about identity. Jesus is a leader, and leaders shape our identities. This could be the voice that we continue to hear in our head from our youth, perhaps from a parent or from a teacher, or our first boss, or the varsity coach, or a mentor, or a pastor from our formative years. It's their leadership that's sort of imprinted on us, and Jesus is a particular kind of leader. So I want to ask you a question this morning before we dive into this text, and the question is this, who is leading you? Who or what is leading and guiding your life right now? So again, we'll look, at, um, we'll look at this statement that Jesus makes when he says, I am the door. But to, before we can even begin to understand about what he means in that statement, I am the door, we have to think about the context of this passage. And so what I want to do as we dive in is um, before we look at John 10, 1 to 10, we're going to consider what actually is happening in John chapter 9 and um, uh, this sort of unfolding narrative that leads Jesus to this statement. So here's what we'll call the immediate context of this. Jesus has performed a miracle, and he has healed a blind man. And this is really, um, this is a man that was born blind, and this story is really the entirety of John chapter 9, but it goes on into John chapter 10. So this story is a crucial kind of point in the gospel of John. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to paraphrase it. Rather than going sort of verse by verse, I'm just going to tell you the story about how this all comes to be. Jesus encounters a man that was blind from birth, and people are wondering, why is this man blind? And the disciples of Jesus ask this question. They're like, so was it, um, was it his sin, or was it his parents' sin that caused him to be blind from birth? This is sort of a normal, I think, one of our flawed kind of human um, thinking about how, why bad things happen in the world. And Jesus goes, actually, it wasn't about his sin. It wasn't about his parents' sin. It was actually, this has happened so that the works of God could be magnified amongst you. And so what happens is that Jesus um, encounters this blind man. He sees him, and he, this man that is well-known in the community, for his blindness, Jesus approaches him, he, uh, he spits on the ground, he makes mud with the saliva, and he puts it on the man's eyes. This is incredibly gross, isn't it? 
okay? His ways are not our ways. But this is how Jesus does it. Makes mud, he puts it on the man's eyes, and then he instructs the man. He says, go to this particular pool, and I want you to wash out the mud. The man listens to Jesus. He's perhaps out of options, if you will, and he washes his eyes out, and then behold, suddenly, he is able to see. And so news has always traveled fast, right? But news traveled particularly fast in this instant. And, and so people are beginning to notice that that's whatever his name was. And he's been blind from birth, but now he's walking around and he can see. And news of this gets to the religious leaders of the day. And they have an interest in what happened. And the religious leaders of the day in particular would find anything that Jesus said or did and they would seek to turn it against him. And the particular sticking point in the fact that Jesus had healed this man, and nobody could deny that fact, but the particular sticking point was that Jesus had done this on the Sabbath. And so what the religious leaders do is they interrogate the man about how this happened. They come up to him, they're like, who did this? And, and the man says, it was the man Jesus, maybe you've heard of him. And then they ask him more questions. And then they bring in his parents. They bring in his parents and they're like, is this your son? They're like, yes. And they say, was he actually blind from birth? And the parents completely deflect and say, why don't you just ask him about it? And uh, why would they do that? Well, they do that because they're afraid. They're afraid of their leaders. They're afraid of the people who are supposed to be pointing them to God. And so it kind of comes back to this interrogation with the man and the religious leaders, and, and they keep asking him, badgering him, what, how did this happen? Who did this? How could this actually happen to you? And the man finally blurts this out. He says, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And he's talking about Jesus. And this enrages and infuriates them to such a degree that we're told that they cast him out. They throw him out of the synagogue, which is not just being sort of thrown out of a room or a building, but it was to be cast out from the religious life of the people of God. The man encounters God in flesh in the person of Jesus, and they throw him out, and they punish him for it. Why would they do this? How could they do this? Well, the truth is, is that religious leaders believe themselves to be the sort of gatekeeper or doorway into life and community with God. They're like, we're actually the entryway. We say who's in and who's out. And so they are kind of on their own sort of merits able to cast this man out. And all the man has done is encountered Jesus and experienced his transforming power. The man's identity from birth was that this is the one that was born blind. And Jesus changes that. But now he's been cast out. So who is he now? Who is the man now to the community? I want to read to you what, what happens next. You can you stay on the same page probably in your Bibles. And in John chapter 9, verses 35 to 38, it says this. Right after they cast him out, I want you to listen to these words. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, 
Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. I want you to think about that for a moment. The religious leaders cast the man out. And what does Jesus do? He goes and finds him. He comes after him. See, Jesus isn't content to simply fix the ailment, the lifelong disease, if you will, that this man had experienced. Jesus comes after him to give him far more than sight. He encounters him. He's been cast out, but Jesus goes looking for him. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. I mean, that's a sermon in and of itself. But here's the thing that I find so much, so compelling about Jesus. Jesus finds this man who's been thrown out by the religious leaders, and Jesus comes to him and he says this to him. He says, who do you think I am? He doesn't come to him and say, who do you think you are now? He doesn't come to give him an even more sort of profound sense of self-discovery. Jesus seeks out the man and says, who do you think that I am? He uses this phrase about the son of man. And the man goes, well, whoever that is, I, I need to know who it is. And Jesus says, I am him. And the Jesus says this powerful statement. He says, you have seen him which is a clue that Jesus is not just restoring his physical sight, but he's giving him the spiritual eyes to know that God in the flesh is in front of him. But, but I want to I press this a little bit further. Jesus impresses his own identity onto the man. He says, what you really need to know is not who you are, but who I am. And this is his gift to him. And this is his gift to us. And this is what we're doing in this series. We're not sort of on a journey of self-discovery. We're on a journey to discover who Jesus is so that he can tell us who we are. This man is now ready to receive his identity as a child of God because he's seen who Jesus is. Are you with me? Can I get a witness? We could, we could, like, we could close in prayer. We haven't even talked about the text we're actually looking at today. I just wanted to help you get ready, okay? It's context. It's called context. So what happens is that this is all unfolding, not just in a private moment with Jesus, but the religious leaders are actually watching this happen. They're actually seeing this happen, this interaction with Jesus and the man. And they ask Jesus this really, this really important question as they sort of witness what Jesus is doing. They ask him this question at the end of chapter 9. They say, are you saying that we are blind? Man, that's a, that's, that's a good one, isn't it? Are you actually, is, are you telling us that we're the ones who are blind? And that brings us right back into our text in John chapter 10. Jesus responds to sort of in the midst of the story and to the wonderings of the religious leaders by saying this, truly, truly, verse one, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. And Jesus uses this illustration that is about sheep and shepherds in the sheepfold. And the story doesn't make as much immediate sense to us, but it would have made a lot of sense to them because this is an agrarian society. And also because so much of the defining story of Israel is about shepherds and sheep. Moses was a shepherd. 
David, Israel's great king, was a shepherd. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. God is a shepherd, and the sheep are the people of God. And so Jesus kind of goes into this, into this illustration, if you will, to them. But I want to be clear here. Jesus is not being devotional. He's being confrontational. Jesus is, this is not the sort of like, the Lord is my shepherd and he's just carrying me around. Jesus is confronting them. Why? Because the shepherds, the religious leaders, are supposed to be the servant representatives of God. The religious leaders of the day were supposed to shepherd in the way of God, loving, wise, bringing care and guidance to the people of God, which are the sheep. So this is the story that Jesus invites them into. The sheepfold was a resting place or a gathering place of sorts for a flock of sheep. So in, in this society, um, shepherds, would, um, they would allow their, their sheep to sort of graze in in pastures, and sometimes these were in treacherous places, and the role of the, sh- of the shepherd was to protect them. And so at night when wolves and robbers would come out, the shepherd would lead the sheep into what was called a sheepfold or a pen. And this, this was sort of a, a kind of self-made gated um, area that would be built with rocks about like a little over waist high, and then thorns would be placed on top of it, so that sheep, foolish sheep couldn't jump out, but also so that predators and robbers and thieves could not climb in. And there was one way into the sheep pen. There was only one way in, and it was referred to as the gate or the door. And Jesus draws on this image when he's telling the stories. And so sheep, what, they would, what would happen at the end of the day, um, sheep, and sometimes this would be various flocks, they would be shuttled into the sheepfold at night. Again, there's one entryway in. I know that some of your translations say, uh, I'm the door or I am the gate, but there's one way in and it's the gate. And the shepherd who was leading the sheep in had to be recognized by the gatekeeper. But also what would happen oftentimes is kind of night would fall the gatekeeper would leave and the shepherd himself would sleep in the doorway as the sort of last protector of his sheep to keep wolves from coming in, to keep robbers from coming in. And so now Jesus is using a number of different metaphors here and illustrations to describe himself in the text, but he is playing a couple of different roles Um, Jesus is playing the role of the shepherd. And so next week, we're going to focus a lot more on what does it mean for Jesus to be our shepherd. This week, we're focusing a little bit more on this idea of the door. But as the original listeners of Jesus would hear this, they, they would begin to move from sort of the immediate context of this interaction between Jesus and the religious leaders and the man that was blind. And this story that Jesus would tell them would take them back to a key text, a defining story in their life as God's people. And that is in Ezekiel 34. I am going to ask you to turn there. It is in the Old Testament. And um, if you can't find it, God bless you. We'll put it on the screen. They're hard to find. I can't always find them. But Ezekiel 34 is what it is. It's really a scathing indictment against the religious leaders of Israel. And so we've moved from the immediate context to the distant context right here. And this is what God has to say through his prophet Ezekiel about the shepherds of Israel, about the religious leaders. This is what God has to say to them. We pick it up in verses 4 and 5. He says this about the leaders of Israel. 
The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. Now, we're supposed to get the imagery of what was supposed to happen was they were supposed to be brought into a sheep pen of fold, but instead, because of the failed leadership, they were scattered. Jesus, or God here in this text is saying, your leaders of Israel, you have failed. But then he gives them a promise. If that's sort of the indictment, this is his promise that comes from God himself. In verse 11, It says, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. So this text, now, now let's fast forward back um, to John chapter 10. This text is about leadership. This is not about some sort of warm fuzzies with Jesus. What Jesus is doing is he's looking into the eyes of the leaders of Israel and he's saying, I'll take it from here. You're being replaced right now. But they don't understand him. So what he does is he makes it even more clear what he is doing. Back in John 10, I want to read to you again, verses 7 to 10. It says this. They don't understand what Jesus is saying about the shepherd and the sheep and the gate and the sheepfold. So Jesus says it this way. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So the thieves and robbers of the illustration that Jesus uses are the religious leaders. I don't know if you notice that there in verse 10. Verse 10 is sort of a passage that I think some of us who've been around the Bible are kind of familiar with. We've heard that phrase, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Don't we often think that that is about the devil? Have you ever prayed that way? Like, Lord, we just, I grew up charismatic. We know the devil came to steal and kill and destroy. It's not about the devil. It's more about, I mean, to be frank, it's more about Christian leaders or pastors, so-called Christian leaders than it is about the devil. It's about the failure of of leaders to emulate the ways of God. It's about leaders who would view themselves as the door or the gatekeepers of who can encounter God and who cannot. 
The leaders in our text, the Pharisees in this text in John chapter 10, they viewed themselves to be the door. They viewed themselves to be the way in and out. And that's what Jesus has come to correct. It's not a warning about, you know, don't listen to the devil. It's a warning about be careful who you listen to. Be careful who you follow. Because who you follow shapes your identity. And Jesus knows that. Okay, so that's sort of the immediate context of what's happening in this text. And we could go on and on about the people of Israel, and we could go back to the Old Testament, but what about, what about our moment? What about this moment right now? This moment in our time? One of the heartbreaking realities when we look at the church today, in this moment, in our moment, is the amount of people that are fleeing or have been cast out of the church. Pastors will get up um, kind of in moments like this and they'll harp on the so-called deconstruction movement of our time. And we'll do that as if we've had nothing to do to contribute to it. So I want to talk to you for a few moments about what are some of the reasons why people walk away from orthodox faith or why people walk away from the church or even at times why people walk explicitly away from Jesus and sort of deconstruct their faith. Now, I don't want to be simplistic. There's so much that we can say about this. I don't want to pretend to have the corner of the market on why that's happening in our time, but there are a few things, there are a few clues in our text that I think are really important for us to consider. Why is it that people will walk away from faith? I want to give you two reasons today. The first is misrepresentation, and the second is what we'll call exclusivity. One of the reasons why people walk away from faith is, is misrepresentation or leadership failings, if you will. So when I listen to stories, and as a pastor, I unfortunately hear many stories of people who are struggling in their faith. And one of my temptations is to say, well, just stop reading that book or listening to that podcast or whatever. And there are a lot of bad books and a lot of bad podcasts, but we're not going to talk about them right now. Because the truth is there are so many stories of pastors and leaders, of shepherds, who have failed to lead in the way of Jesus, and the effect has been devastating on the church. And remember, it's leaders that often shape our identity, even at our most formative moments. Sometimes this can come from sort of a well-known pastor, Maybe someone that we don't know. How many stories have there been of celebrity pastors or leaders that have this sort of massive platform and influence and only, only to be undone by the power and popularity that the Bible so often warns us against? Cue the documentary, cue the podcast, right? The late pastor Eugene Peterson often used to say this. He said, there are three great temptations in, in, in human history, sex, substances, and fame. And he said, pastors will get fired for succumbing to the first two, but they will get a raise for the third. You're welcome. <laughs> so the sort of, I guess, rise and fall, to quote a recent podcast, of celebrity pastors, has done so much damage to people's faith and even their trust in Jesus. But the truth is, you don't have to be a famous pastor with thousands in your church or millions watching online 
to have a devastating impact on the maturing faith of one of God's sheep. And I know that there are people in this room whose life has been imprinted, whose identity has been, let's say, deformed by a pastor or leader who failed to model the way of Jesus to them. And you don't have to be a part of a church of thousands or hundreds. It could be a church of 50. And perhaps this could happen. It was the sin of a leader, either through the abuse of power or sex or money or harshness and hypocrisy and arrogance. Fill in the blank. But sometimes people walk away from faith or they walk away from church or they walk away from Jesus because of leaders who have misrepresented him. And if that feels sobering, it should. There's a lot of um, anger in our time. And you, you can just, in a simple Google search, you can find a lot of anger against the church right now. But I just, I want to tell you this. Jesus is more angry. Jesus is infuriated by misrepresentation. In our text, Jesus is enraged because God himself has been misrepresented by the leaders of Israel. Their goal was to point people to God and to lovingly guide them in his ways, and instead, they're casting people out. The leaders are the door. The leaders are the failed shepherds. And rather than pointing to the door and saying, this is it, you gotta come in here, they cast out whomever they want. But in our time, misrepresentation is a thing that Jesus just hates. Because our, our, the goal, the goal of, of Christian ministry, of gospel ministry, is not as complicated as we think it is. It is to magnify the identity of Jesus to impress who he is onto people through showing them the ways of Jesus, through preaching the ways of Jesus, through modeling the life that he has called us to, and allowing his spirit to work in us to shape our identity. That's what we're called to do. We're not called to be the gatekeepers, here's who's in, here's who's out. We are called to say, this is the door, and this is the only door. And one of the failures is just that we, we, we misrepresent the one we're pointing to. And it is a tragedy. There are many Christian leaders in this room. Worship leaders, greeters, people who put the communion together, business leaders, youth leaders, kids ministry leaders, teachers, coaches, parents for crying out loud. There are many Christian leaders in here. And here's the call to us today. It's to cling to the person of Jesus to cling to him, and to pay attention to the way that he leads. I would even say our, our call as Christian leaders is to obsess over the way of Jesus, to ask questions like, how does Jesus use his authority? How patient is Jesus with those who are struggling with their faith, but even still come to him? How is Jesus slow to anger? Doesn't Jesus say that he came not to be served, but to serve? If you have any influence over in anyone's life for the sake of the gospel, obsess over the life and ways of Jesus, please. And when you fail, and you will fail, 
when you fail to represent him well, plead the blood of Jesus. See, Jesus knows that he will be misrepresented. And he doesn't just have grace for those who have been cast out. He has grace for even the failings of those who are called to represent him. And he will not cast you out. So that's, I think, one reason why people walk away from Jesus. It's, it's, it's the misrepresentation by his, by his leaders and his followers. And the second reason, I think, and this, this definitely brings us back into the text and, and is something we need to consider. The second reason I think many walk away from Jesus is the exclusivity of Jesus. One of the failings of Christian leaders is to present Jesus as an option among many. Like, hey, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of doors, you know, here's one of them. But that's not how Jesus presents himself to us. Jesus is highly exclusive in his claims, and it's a failure to sort of pacify them, to sort of be winsome and, and, and be as inviting to as many as possible. Jesus doesn't do it that way. He doesn't say, I am a light in the world. He doesn't say, I am a form of bread. He doesn't say, I am a door. He says, I am the door. I am the door. He's not an option among many. He's exclusive. He has no peer. He has competitors, but they can't give what he can. So I want to talk to you today, even in thinking about the exclusivity of Jesus. I want us to, to just resonate with the fact that he is not, he is not saying, I, you, you know, take me or leave me but we have to think about what he actually has to offer us today. What does Jesus actually offer to us when he says, I am the door? Which is his way of saying, if you want to get to God, come through me. What does he offer in that? We see it in verse nine, and we'll end here. Verse nine of, of chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the door. And then he says this, he says, if any enters by me, three things, I know you want a three-point sermon. Here it is. He will be saved. They will go in and out, and they will find pasture. What Jesus means is that he's the only access way to God, to God's kingdom, and to the community of God. But Jesus says this. He says, if anyone enters by me, they will be saved. They will come in and out and find pasture. What Jesus is talking about is salvation and liberty and nourishment. And I'm going to give credit where credit's due. This comes from Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. He said, this is what Jesus is actually offering us in this text. This is, this, he's, yes, he's exclusive, but isn't what he has to offer better than anything else? Salvation, liberty, and nourishment. Many of us, when we hear the call of Jesus, we believe the lie, that if we follow Jesus, we will be lost, that you will be trapped, and that all your desires will go unfulfilled. That's sort of the message in the world about Jesus. But Jesus tells us that we will be saved, and we will be free, and we will be nourished, sustained by him. What does Jesus mean when he means we'll be saved? He's talking about our vertical connection to God. All throughout John, when John talks about salvation, he's talking about being free from condemnation. Not just in our world, but actually being free from the wrath of God. 
against sin. Jesus says, if you enter by me, your sins will be forgiven. Jesus goes on to say that you will come in and out. What Jesus is saying, it's like, if, if you enter my way, you can kind of take it or leave it, you can come and go. No, he doesn't mean that. What he means is that you will find liberty in life. When he says you'll come in and out, what he's getting after is this idea that if you, if you come through the way of Jesus, then every part of your life will be led by his spirit. If you're coming in and out of work, as you're coming in and out of a church service, as you're coming in and out of a conversation, you will experience the freedom that is found only in Christ. When Jesus says you will go in and out, he's talking about our sort of horizontal life on earth. He says you'll go in and out. And then finally he says this, you will find pasture. What he means by that is your life will be sustained by the power of God. He leads me in green pastures. He nourishes us. This is the offer of Jesus. It's exclusive. Why? Because door one has a shoebox and it's useless. And the other door, door two, has a goat that's simply going to drag your life down. It's like the pet you never wanted. He's like, that's what you're going to get. But through this door is life to the full. And there's only one way. But there's no hoops to jump through. Jesus says, simply come. Come to me. And this is his invitation to us today. Come to me. Come by me, through me. He walks with us. He leads us. He simply come to tell us, I'm the door. And if you come through me, you'll have life to the full. And he's offering us a better way. And for those, for those of us who, who lead and serve in his kingdom, he's reminding us that our one goal, if any, is to fling wide open the door and to say to everyone who will listen, come into new life. Come in and receive what you could never earn. That's what he's calling us to. Is it sobering? Of course it is. But it's full of life. And there's one more thing that I need to tell you today because I know some of you need to hear this today. It's in John chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus says these words. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Our story, our text, is about one who's been cast out. One who's been thrown aside. Maybe you've been cast out. Maybe you've cast yourself out. I don't know. But Jesus looks at us. In in even these, these claims, these exclusive claims about himself, He says, here's something you can bank on. I'll never cast you out. And when someone else casts you out, or when you cast yourself out, what does he do? He comes looking for us to bring us back, to tell us who we are. What's your identity? You're a child of God if you enter by the way of Jesus. 
But you don't find that identity by seeking it out on its own. You find that identity by seeking the identity of Jesus. Are you with me? That's what we're doing. We're magnifying who he is and finding ourselves in him. He will never cast you out. He can't because he loves you. And he won't because he is love. And this is our God. And this is what he's like. And this is who he says we are. We belong to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for showing us who you are. Thank you for the beauty of your word. We thank you for telling us the truth when we need to hear it, Lord. We repent, God, today that we've We've often sought another way, but Lord, help us to walk in yours. Help us to love the truth that the only way to the Father, that the only way to new life is through you. And help us to remember that the door is wide open. You never shut us out. And so Lord, today, even imperfectly, Lord, we, we come. We simply come again to your table to receive life and nourishment, to worship you. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of who you are and what you've said about us, Lord. We love you. Amen. Amen.